Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I am here again with Chris Peck. He is a communication coach and public speaking coach. He's also gone through his own deconstruction process from the Church of Christ, which is a Protestant sort of fundamentalist, non-denominational Christian sect that he explained more about in the past episode. If you want to go hear more about that, you can. But today we are going to continue our conversation about the book, Authentic, How to Be Yourself and Why It Matters by Professor Stephen Joseph. And today we're talking particularly about the 20 or 30% of the book that really paints authenticity as a binary, as a right way to live and be in the world and a wrong way to live and be in the world. And I am thrilled that I get to have this conversation with Chris, who has kind of been a real partner Um, along this journey of exploring what authenticity is and how we achieve it and if it even exists. So welcome to the show, Chris. So happy to have you here again. Oh, so glad to be back. Last Ah. week was fun. (laughs) Last week was super, super fun. And so, yeah, I can't wait to see what comes out today. Um, I'm going to go ahead and like turn it over to you because this was a question that you brought up, which is this kind of like binary sort of culty feeling that comes up in the Mm -hmm. inauthenticity movement Mm -hmm. and it's usually in conjunction with authenticity so what did you observe and why was it concerning to you so it it's not so much the language around authenticity as it really is this language around inauthenticity and i don't know how much you keep up with some of the cult movements that exist currently um, I know there's a ton of research um, and a, a ton of information that's come out about ne- uh, Nexium and Keith mm-hmm. Raniere, uh, about Teal Swan and her cult. And those are two cult leaders that I hear using the term inauthenticity as a weapon quite often, is by pointing to individuals and say, you're not being authentic as a way to control behavior and thoughts, uh, emotions, information. And, and, and that was, you know, I don't think that Steve, Stephen Joseph is doing that in a nefarious way. There are definitely pieces of this book where in an effort to identify what is authentic behavior, he has to move a little bit into what he would identify as inauthentic behavior. And to me, that's a really precarious place to live because I think we are, are hearing that term inauthenticity utilized um, as a way to kind of control other people's behavior, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially when we think of authenticity and inauthenticity as both something that we experience internally, but also something that other people experience as being performative. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but a few months ago on LinkedIn, there was a CEO that came out with a video. The CEO had just had to lay off members of his organization. And it was a small organization. Uh, He had a very sort of familial relationship with his employees. And so 
at least as the way he performed it in the video, this was a very challenging decision for him to make. And he got very emotional. There were tears. And it was really interesting how audiences responded to that because it was pretty polarized. But half the audiences were very supportive of this. Thank you for your vulnerability. This is what true leadership is. And the other half were like, wow, look at those crocodile tears. Like mm-hmm. this guy's out of touch. He just had to fire individuals. Imagine how they feel. And so it's interesting because when we think about authenticity as something, and I do believe that authenticity is performative. Right. But when we think about authenticity as being something performative, we're both performing for ourselves and we're performing for others. Mm-hmm. And so who gets to decide what authenticity is for an individual? You know, the writer mentions that we, right, are like should take autonomous ownership of our own authenticity. And yet in this book outlines ways in which we can be inauthentic. And so it's just a really challenging place to exist. And, and he goes too far into what I think is sort of binary ways of looking at authenticity. If you're not being authentic, then you're being inauthentic and inauthenticity is bad and authenticity is good. Yeah. And coming out of high control religion, you know, I read all 250 pages of this and there were a ton of triggers that were going off for me. Um, So I'm wondering if your experience was similar. Well, it's so funny because I read a paperback version of it in December and then on my Kindle, downloaded it on my Kindle as well. And so so that I could highlight in yellow for things that I found really interesting and red for things that felt like red flags. And there were mm. parts of the book where there were lots of like red flags that were happening because I was hearing, like you said, I was hearing somebody setting themselves up almost as an authority to tell you how to be your own authority. And I think we get into some really problematic um, areas there when you have someone else telling you how to be your own authority. So I think what he was trying to do, this is my most generous assumption, what he was trying to do was like put the research out there so that people could kind of start their own conversations with themselves. But when you come from the background that we've come from, where we've had outside authority telling us how to be, what to value, what to believe, how to act, how to think, how to speak, that becomes really problematic because we have that neural pathway really, you know, well-traveled in our brains, which is like, oh, an authority said this. And when you have it on the book, Professor Stephen Joseph, that sets him up as an authority And it can be really easy to be like, oh, he must know the right way. And to get into this, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Instead of looking at it more, I think, as on a spectrum, at any given Mm -hmm. point, you know, we're maybe more in touch with ourselves or less in touch with ourselves. And none of that is good or bad. All of that is information. That's it. It's just information about where we are right now in this moment. If I find myself saying yes when I meant to say no, what was it about that situation or my relationship with that person or where I'm at that day that made me more likely to say yes before I really checked in with myself and realized that yeah. actually, no, I don't want to do that. So yeah, yeah, it was definitely a problematic thing that I was seeing in the book was having an authority figure tell you how to be your own authority. Was that something that stood out for you too? It, you know, it was. Okay. I'm taking a quick moment before Chris answers, because he has some great things to say, to remind you that Chris is coming to the live conversation this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. 
if you want to be able to talk to Chris and I both live about authenticity, if you want to ask your questions, if you want to add your two cents into this pot of philosophy and just getting curious about what it means to be human and what it means to be you and whether other people should get to tell you whether you're being inauthentic or not. And what does it mean that authenticity is performative? Do you even believe that? Do you think something different? If you want to be a part of that, and we are having so much fun on these weekly calls, please go to emancipateyourmind.org. Look on the right-hand side of the page if you're on your computer or down at the bottom if you're on your phone. Click on the area that says support the podcast and give a gift. Choose the monthly donation button and choose whatever amount feels good for you. All monthly donors are not only added to the weekly call, but you're going to get a weekly email with additional tools and journal prompts and exercises that will help you extract the most value from every single episode I produce from here on out. We look forward to seeing you there. Now, without further ado, Chris, please share your insights with us. Now that I'm, you know, safely sitting in my deconstruction and I've had some time to kind of like pick apart and think about my relationship with the church growing up and just looking at how loosey-goosey that theology is, right? Mm -hmm. How, you know, when you're in it, that dogma is truth, but when you're out of it, you're like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. And, and that kind of paralleled to me, I actually did not find this book to be particularly well-researched. Um, I thought the data and the research was, you know, and I hate looking at this because I have a huge heart for the psychological community. And I know that the psychological community is stigmatized as a pseudoscience, but this book felt pseudoscience-y to me. Same. It's actually interesting. Kevin and I went on a little like rabbit trail because Mm -hmm. he was talking about the uh, positive psychology movement, I believe is what he was calling it. And how it dovetails, there's actually a huge conflict happening in the psychological community between the positive psychology movement, which has often been um, kind of taken by some cult movements, like you said, like Uh Nexium and the Teal Swan cult and several other coaches. Like there's a toxic positivity movement that kind of takes Uh some of these um, positive psychology things and like runs away with them to kind of an unhealthy level. But it builds on the humanist psychology movement, which basically says that humans are basically good and that, Mm -hmm. you know, when left to their own devices, they'll discover the best ways for them to grow and develop if we can just kind of nurture who they naturally are. And that's like the Carl Rogers, um, Jungian type movement. Yeah. And so there's this huge debate of like, you appropriated our work and you took it and you're taking ownership of it. And the humanists are saying, you know, that's humanists is the positive psychology and positive psychology is like, no, like we came up with this. We're the only ones looking at how to be happy. And oh my gosh, it's a whole thing. But you're right. There is a lot of pseudoscience that's happening where it's, I think a lot of the research samples that are happening are very small and we're not a little anecdotal. Yeah. And we're not checking and double checking. Like, is this true for people who live in different places? A lot of these are happening at universities that are predominantly white and privileged because they're at college. Like, is their experience the same as someone who grew up in an inner city? Is their experience the same as someone who grew up in a different country, um, who had a different skin color, different ethnicity? Like, 
there's there's a lot that I feel like is really anecdotal and privileged about the research yes. that is presented in the book. Yeah, and I'm actually really glad that you're bringing up that word privileged because that was something that came up for me too, is what felt like a slightly out of touch and privileged argument, um, which again, sort of resonates with, you know, like when, and I don't know what your experience was like, but I grew up in a mostly white church, right? Where everybody was kind of blue collar, middle class. Mm -hmm. And so it was very much an environment of familiarity. There wasn't a lot of diversity to push back or to challenge. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, it feels a little like that's where this individual is writing from is, you know, and, and I think there are, I also think there are better books about positive psychology. Sean Aker writes a book called the happiness advantage, which I find to be very well researched. Um, His, his data points are to me much stronger and yet and yet there's still a little bit of that where he's you know doing most of his work at harvard right so you're talking like a privileged community you're talking uh, a pretty um homogenous community and so and so there are still some of those pieces that we have to kind of better out when we start asking questions about diversity or privilege or you know like I mean, this thing isn't anywhere close to like talking about colonialism. I mean, we're just not there in terms of this research at all. No, not at all. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I did grow up in a very um, white church community. However, like there was that piece of having a Mexican father in a white mm-hmm. church community. And so there were stories that my family created about our worthiness as a family, because my father often was overlooked for leadership positions because we have a lay leadership. Everybody has their, you know, normal job, but then they're called quote unquote to fill positions in the church all the way from like the bishop, which is the leader of the congregation all the way down to like the person that's manning the nursery with the little, little kids. Um, And so you're invited to you know, be in leadership or to fulfill some other calling. My father was often chosen to be more of a supportive role instead of a leadership role. Mm. And the story in my family was it was because he was brown. And so, yeah, yeah, so being brown was even growing up in a Mexican family, like there was a fair amount of racial prejudice that I was taught that it it was a disadvantage um, and that it was problematic to be brown. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. Even growing up in a mixed racial household because we were raised in a white church. And a lot of that, that feeling came from my own family's stories about why they weren't chosen for leadership or why they weren't given um, more authority than they were given. So, yeah, it's crazy how we all have those different experiences, like, you know, depending on those, those details. So, yeah. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about how this kind of becomes culty, this inauthenticity movement. What is problematic do you see in it, in the way it's being used? Because I see it not just being used by some of the bigger cults like Nexium, the mm-hmm. ones that are having, you know, their Netflix documentaries and stuff making made about them. Um, but I see this also in some of the coaching like language that's happening on social media, some of the like memes that are being shared, um, some of the new age spirituality movement that's happening. 
I think these ideas have have kind of interwoven into our Western society. And I, I just want your thoughts about where you see it happening and why it's problematic. You know, it's my wife and I have been listening to a ton of podcasts. Um, we, we love our cult podcasts, but it's kind of moved us into like con artist podcasts. And we just recently listened to an excellent podcast about multi-level marketing. Mm. And, you know, if you're, if you were to create a Venn diagram, looking at the overlap between an unregulated health and wellness field and cults and multi-level marketing is really fascinating. Yeah. Um, But you're right. And actually one of the, I remember, man, I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this, but I remember going to a networking group and their big thing was all about like, we want to show up authentically, no small talk. We just want to get in deep and have real conversations with real people. I never really felt like that happened, but let me tell you what that group loved. They loved their Enneagrams. Mm. And, and I, I don't have any problem with Enneagrams or the Myers-Briggs or your disk assessment or your astrological sign, when you are using it as information that can tell you a bit about who you are. Yeah. But one of the things that I found within this group or felt within this group, right. And maybe push back and, you know, I'm never going to talk to any of them again. So, but one of the things that I always felt was one, the first thing that happened when I walked through the door is people started talking about Enneagrams. What's your Enneagram? And I'm like, I don't know. What is an Enneagram? Like I, like, I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, I took the Enneagram years ago. I don't even remember what I am. But, <laughs> but it was like, oh, you have to know what your Enneagram is. Like this, this, is, this is groundbreaking. It's what is your Enneagram? And then, but then there was kind of this sense of once you were identified, identified as a three or a nine or an eight or whatever the different numbers are. Um, that's who you are. And this was absolutely a group that I would say was looking at authenticity from the perspective of trying to identify their true self mm-hmm. and trying to find the true self through the exploration of this Enneagram information. But that group always felt a little, little culty to me. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I would say like a culture, you know, or cult-ish. I don't think there was any obvious abuse of power, but there was kind of this sense of like, if you're a three, you're best identified for these types of roles. And if you're a five, you would do best in these types of situations. And maybe that's true. And maybe that's not. But I agree with you. I think particularly in an unregulated, and I am I benefit from an unregulated health and wellness field. I am a communication coach, but I don't have any like certificates or anything. Like I am, you know, I have a master's degree in stage directing, and I have used those tool, those theatrical tools in order to benefit individual and their communication practices. And so I absolutely benefit from an unregulated health and wellness field. But within that, there are a lot of groups that are like trying to identify their brands. And that brand is getting a little culty. Like that culture is moving further and further on the spectrum. We see it in multi-level marketing. We see it in uh, certain organizations or groups within the health and wellness field. And, and a lot of them 
I find are using this language of authenticity and inauthenticity mm-hmm. in order to define what is and is not acceptable behavior for their members. Yes. And that to me is not just triggering, it's a little frightening. Absolutely. Well, and I see as we're seeing this deconstruction, I think phenomenon happening in the United States, I'm mm-hmm. equally seeing a whole host of other cults popping up to kind of take that, well, to fill that void, because that's what many of us do is we root something out, but then we plant something right back in there because that hole, that uncertainty feels really uncomfortable. And that's part of the reason I started coming to you for coaching is, you know, the year 2021 was a year where I saw a lot of my coaching friends move from this idea of, I want to help people you know, discover who they are and become their best selves. And I want to help them feel connected to community. And then they created a cult. By the end of 2021, I had four or five friends that had created full-blown cults, like with some of them with churches and everything, like virtual churches. And so they were creating like, you know, 2021, I explored a lot of new age spirituality just because I was scared of it. I'd been taught to be scared of it in Mormonism. And so I looked into like, tarot reading and oracle card reading and uh, witchcraft and like psychic crap. I did Mm -hmm. like, I Mm -hmm. did all of that. And I know that some people find that very, very beautiful. And some of that language started happening where people were saying like, this is how you have to show up. This is who you have to be in order to be your best self. And if you're not doing these things, it's because you're letting fear or shame run the show. You're being inauthentic. You're people pleasing. You're, you're being perfectionistic this is what your authentic self looks like. And a huge red flag came up for me. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have outside people telling me how to be myself. And I just kind of like sequestered in 2022. And I hired you as a coach to help me not become that. It was like my biggest fear for 2022 was becoming a cult leader. And you are the one that helped me like get really clear about what is me and what is other people and how not to become the guru for others and to be really like open about the fact that I only know what works for me. And that's literally the extent of my knowledge, what works for me and what the research has shown. But even then, as you said, sometimes the research is really anecdotal and, um, and only like samples a very specific group of people. And even then we can kind of take that with a grain of salt and move forward as best we can. So yeah, it's, it's scary. Like you said, Mm -hmm to see some of these cult movements coming up. Cause I think we take that black and white thinking that authoritarianism that we grew up with, which I think it was something like 85% of us were religious when we were children. Like if you look at the statistics from Pew research right. back then, it was like right. 85% of us were identified as Christian. Right. And now and at a time when the evangelical movement was as arguably insidious as it's ever been. Yes. You know, we're right on the heels of the civil rights movement yeah. where the evangelical cause like put their foot down yeah. and pushed back against civil rights. And then when they lost that battle, they were like, our new fight is the LGBTQ community. And the so, LGBTQ yeah. community, the drugs, like the uh-huh. war on drugs and the mm-hmm. abortion. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we all grew up in the middle of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you bring something else up that's, you know, when we talk about authenticity versus inauthenticity. You know, when I start thinking about like the difference between like cult and cultures and 
when those organizations start to become a little more nefarious, it it's when it's when I start blaming you for not playing by my rules. Yes. Right. It's not, it's not that what I'm doing doesn't work. It's that you're doing it wrong. Yep. And when we start talking about a binary relationship between authenticity and inauthenticity, it's really easy to establish the credibility of authenticity because if you're not feeling right or the way you should be, then I can just point a figure finger at you and say, well, obviously, Terry, you're being inauthentic. You're mm-hmm. a three and you're acting like a seven. Stop it. Yeah. You know? And you're like, but I want to try on a seven. I like, you know, and I am really just pulling numbers out of it anywhere. I I actually think it's so interesting you pulled out those two numbers because on any given day, depending on when I take an Enneagram test, I am either a three Mm -hmm. or I am a seven. And I go back and forth. So before COVID, I would actually be a seven more often. Now after COVID, I'm a three more often, but it still goes back and forth. I can be the fun loving, like life of the party, like let's have fun, kind of fly by the seat of my pants. But I can also be the like super controlled, organized, like, you know. And again, and again, I want it to be, you know, I want it to be really clear. I don't have a problem with the Enneagram test. Yeah. I think it's terrific information, just like a Myers-Briggs test is terrific information or a DISC assessment is information or thinking about your authenticity, like, am I showing up? Am I showing up intentionally, right? Like to act in my own authority, how do I want to show up? How do I want people to see, feel and experience me? But when we start utilizing authenticity or Enneagrams or Myers-Briggs or astrology or whatever it is to determine the way that people are and are not allowed to behave, that's when I find us moving right back into really insidious, high demand, like controlling groups. Absolutely. And, and it is interesting that so many individuals, when they leave, like when they start their deconstruction, when they leave their own high demand religion, desperately are looking for something both familiar and different. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be a part of a church. Like, I don't want to be a part of Christianity anymore, but I need to be a part of something And so they're attracted to something very different from Christianity, but with the same tenets of control and, uh, you know, and trying to, and trying to inhibit the way you behave or the way that you think, right. It's just, it's just a different set of like beliefs, but it's following all the same rules of the high demand religion that they, they went away from. Yeah. And I definitely fell pray to that when I very first left too. I mean, I don't know if anyone listening to this knows, but like I got involved in an MLM right before I left the church. Mm. In some ways it actually helped me. Like it gave me a a group and a community that I could fall back on while I was deconstructing and losing my, my church community. But it wasn't long as I was, you know, studying the bite model that I started recognizing some of those same things that were happening inside of the MLM. What's interesting is Kevin was finding some of those same things in the psychological community. So we're mm-hmm. studying the bite model and he kind of replaced religion with psychology for a little bit. Like that was his religion. And there's very much uh this is a right way and this is the wrong way to be a psychologist. Mm-hmm. This is like there's different camps of thought, just like there's different churches. And you know, we both were like, oh wait, okay. So we're gonna like take away that structure and like take what's good and what's not, you know, like discard what's not working for us and what is working for us. We're going to keep from all of these different 
places and camps. And so it's, it's so interesting because I love tests like Meyer Briggs and Enneagrams and stuff like that as a way to start asking myself questions about how I experience the world. But what really bothers me is when I'm, I'll have somebody come and say, no, you're an eight. And I'm like, no, I'm not like none (laughs) of that resonates. No, you really are. And you're just showing up inauthentically. And I'm like, no, really inside my head none of that resonates like, or when it's a little more subversive than that. And they look at you and go, Oh, I bet you're an eight. Oh, actually I'm a three and sometimes a seven. Oh, I totally would have pegged you for an eight. Yep. And now, and now that earworm is there and you're sitting and you're like, why did they think I'm an eight? What is an eight? And you go back through and you're looking at the, the, like the different actions of an eight. And you're like, am I kind of like that? How am I showing? Right. And now yeah. we start second guessing ourselves instead of just allowing ourselves to be like the most, like we just are the, an authentic version of ourselves in that moment. Like you may have like a one, a three, a five, and a seven all operating together. And guess what? That's authentic carry right here and right now. Absolutely. Well, and what I think is interesting is the people that are like, oh, you know, you might, I think you're an eight. There's also this like thing that's happening in the Enneagram community where people are like, sometimes the one that you're not willing to um, identify as is who you actually are because you just don't want to admit that to yourself. And so there's that thing that also triggers some of that like religious trauma and stuff of doubting yourself um, and listening to outside authority. So yeah, I've, I've found it very interesting. I think it can be both incredibly helpful to have some of these tests to help you go, okay, like that. Like whenever I read about the three, I was like, this helps me make a lot more sense of why I act the way I act. And this does feel kind of like home in some ways, but there are some things that don't fit. But having that freedom to be like, these things really fit for me and these things really don't, I think helped me begin to identify my identity after leaving high demand religion. But I also needed the freedom to be like, I don't fully fit in this box and I don't fully fit in that box because there's no one like me. There's just me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I'd be really interested in like, like we need to accept just how much fluidity there is in our personality anyway. Like Mm -hmm. take a Myers-Briggs test on a Monday and then take it again on Friday and see how different it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Take it in the morning versus taking it in the evening. Take it after having the best conversation with your closest friend over coffee and then take it after getting a fight with your mom. You know, there is so much fluidity in our personality and, and these sort of like strict, Oh, you're an eight or you're an INTJ or, you know, you're a dominant personality or whatever the case may be. Like when we get really strict about what you are and are not allowed to be right. Based on, taking that test in that moment on that day of your life, I really think we're, you know, the other piece that I, we haven't talked about yet is you're really making yourself susceptible to kind of a stagnant lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of cutting off your opportunity to grow because as you grow, you will, you will inevitably change as you, as you receive more information, you will look at the world differently. Mm-hmm. And, and so we find ourselves in a place where it's like, well, I can't do that. You know, we, we start to self-regulate. I can't, I can't accept new information because this is who I am, right? Whether it's how God made me or it's my Enneagram or whatever the case may be, this is who I am. And what does it mean if I change? Yeah. Who will I be if I who change? Will I be? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I find like, even from my own experience, I'm an ambivert, which means on any given day or really from hour to hour, like right now I'm really enjoying this conversation, but guarantee after we turn off this microphone, I'm going to go cocoon and eat my lunch and just enjoy being in the quiet by myself because I need that just as much. So I need people and I need conversation and it energizes me, but I also get energized by being in the silent alone with my thoughts. And I used to, after taking the Meyer Briggs test, like 12 years ago or something like that, it said that I was an ENTJ or like an, an I don't even remember, but it was a, the E, the extroverted one. And so when I would need time alone, I would feel bad for that. Because I felt like, no, I'm not giving myself what I need. I need to be with people. I need extroversion. And it's Kevin rubbing off on me. This is this is Kevin's personality that I'm taking mm-hmm. on. And actually, I'm not introverted. So what am I doing? No, I'm both. And it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the last time I took a, a Myers-Briggs test, I was 50-50 EI. Like I was, I mean, I am as ambiverty as an ambivert can be. But I also, you know, and that's another thing. I mean, you're, you're, you're bringing up another binary. We're either an extrovert or we're an introvert. And I believe it's a sliding scale. Yep. You know, I, I, have, I have sat down with coffee where the first person, like the first thing that an individual that I'm meeting for the first time says to me is, yeah, I'm an introvert. And then they spend the next hour talking my ear off, you know, and not to say that introverts don't have anything to say. They have quite a bit to say. You know, and they have amazing things to say, but to pigeonhole ourselves is either entirely extrovert or entirely introvert. Again, I think it's taking away the sliding scale and the fluidity that we really need to allow ourselves to exist in any moment. Yeah. Um, and the other piece of it too is so much of it is performative, not not in a bad way. Again, you know, when I talked about this last week, there's nothing wrong with performing. There's nothing wrong with pretending. There's nothing wrong with wearing a mask or acting right? The presentation of ourselves dictates that we will show up differently for different people. Mm -hmm. And we, I think it's a really cool thing that human beings can do Mm -hmm. is our ability to perform differently in different circumstances, to show up differently for different people in our lives and, and to show up for ourselves differently at different times. And I, and I think by showing a little bit of self-compassion and allowing for that fluidity, um, I think Again, I think it's a really rich part of the human experience. I do too. Well, and we're actually genetically hardwired to show up differently with different people. We have something called mirror neurons Mm -hmm. that mirror the energy we're getting from the people that we're around, which is why if you're around somebody who's very quiet and shy, you have a tendency to like tone down and to maybe talk quieter Mm -hmm. because your body genetically is built to mirror someone else's energy. And it's why when you're around somebody that's really loud and fun and crazy and like dancing, you're more likely to come, you know, out and match that energy. So, and we do that with, you know, public speaking with our audiences as well. If our audience looks like they're falling asleep, like we have a tendency to, you know, to notice that and feel that energy in our body. And same, if they're like really on fire and engaging with us, we have a tendency to mirror that too. We're genetically built to mirror the energy and it helps us with empathy. That's actually what it's there for. It's there to help us connect and be social creatures. Just like we were talking about last week, we're both individuals and we're social creatures and we have both of those needs. And I think 
when we're just looking at our individuality at the expense of our connection to other people and the way we fit in social groups, which is also something we need for survival, then we're doing ourselves a disservice, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, while we're talking about performativity, I, I wanted to bring something up to you. So on page 106 of Why Authenticity Matters, there's an exercise, and you may remember, but it's the how do you spend your time exercise. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then I have a question I want to pose to you. Um, so the writer says, think about how you spend your time. Try setting your watch or mobile phone beep uh, or mobile phone to beep at 10 random points during the day for the next few days. As it bleeps, make a note of what you're doing at that time. Are you working? Are you spending time with friends? Are you sitting reading? Whatever it might be that you're doing, just make a note. Are you doing something that is hedonic or eudaimonic, which we haven't talked talked about, um, in orientation? Why are you doing what you're doing? Dig deep into the reason. For example, you might say, okay, blah, blah, blah. So I'm reading this and I'm like, ooh, but you know what the piece of it that he's leaving out is? Hmm. I guarantee do this exercise and you will be intentional about what you are doing at the times that you're, even if you were to give your phone to, uh, to Kevin and yeah. say, pick 10 random times throughout the day for this thing to be, you're going to be more intentional in the way that you show up that day. You're going to be thinking about, you're going to be performing more because you want, like, because you're looking for a certain outcome. Yeah. And so, you know, and so even within that, as he's talking about, you know, some of these exercises that we can use to kind of get connected with our authenticity, he's choosing exercises that like we are going to perform for, mm-hmm. you know? And so with, but then the question is, is that inauthentic? <laughs> it's always a question. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of picked up on that as well. However, the thing that I picked up on is, you know, throughout the day, like, Who's to say that if I'm doing something that's hedonic, which he describes as just bringing you pleasure and bringing like having no other reason than bringing you pleasure. What's wrong with that? If I'm doing something hedonic, if I'm eating a piece of chocolate cake and I am loving the hell out of that piece of chocolate cake and I'm sitting there and I'm watching Gilmore Girls or I'm, you know, watching some new girl or whatever it is that I'm watching that brings me no educational value whatsoever, but it's just super fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Who's to say that that is an inauthentic use of my time? Who's to say that that's not okay? Or who's to say that if I'm using my time eudaimonically, which he often talks about as like serving the greater good and all of that. um, There were many times when I was in the church that I would Mm. serve people and the whole time was resenting the hell out of it because I wished I had said no. I needed rest. I needed um, time alone. I needed, you know, time with my family. I I just wanted to curl up and read a book, but I said yes, because I thought that that was for the greater good. I thought that that was what I should yeah. be doing with my time. And I think he's setting up that same, mm. that same dynamic that we had in high demand religion, that things for pleasure are bad yep. or, or at least not as good. And things for the greater good of society are always good. And I don't think that that's the case. I think sometimes I need to be sitting on the couch with a piece of cold chocolate cake, watching Gilmore Girls, and just getting to be. And Ooh, I, I think I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, when I was reading that, it 
felt like another organization preying on the altruism of humanity, yeah. you know, which is something that came up for me when I was in the educational system. It's something that came up for me when I was in nonprofit. It's something that came up for me when I was in high demand religion is that organizations, organizations, cult or otherwise mm-hmm. prey on the altruism of people. And they use this kind of language. And yes, I do think like we need to explore both. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe we need to get curious, like if we're missing something, maybe think about one side or the other, you know, are you serving other individuals to the point that you have nothing left in your own tank, but also is your tank kind of like overflowing to the point that you, you kind of don't know what you're doing. And like, maybe you need an outlet for service, but also explore it as information, not as something that's right or wrong. Yeah. Because I agree with you. This that piece right there, as soon as he mentioned that, I was like, ooh, ick. Yeah. Ick. Like I I don't like the way this makes me feel. I'm right back, you know, working for a nonprofit that can't pay me, or I'm in a church that expects certain talents of me, um, but is going to give back nothing in return. Yeah. Like I was just I was back in those places and I and I did not feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, and Again, we're bringing up that dichotomy of you're being authentic or you're being inauthentic, that serving other people is authentic and that mm-hmm. enjoying pleasure, whatever that pleasure is that doesn't serve anyone else is somehow inauthentic. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a really false dichotomy. And I think it leaves us feeling guilty and afraid whenever we do things that we n- need to just enjoy living, to just yeah. be um, I need sleep. Sometimes I just want to wrap up in my blanket and sit there and watch the clouds go by. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I just want to like exist in my house with my family without any expectation of us doing activities or whatever. Like we'll have conversations when we have conversations and sometimes we just sit beside each other and read stuff. Yeah, and All yeah. of that is okay. Well, and I would take it a step further because I don't just think it's serving others is authentic right? And serving, it's serving self is inauthentic. When we are doing things for for ourself, right? When we are taking pleasure in, in life's self gratification, that somehow that is inauthentic. And again, that is language that's been regurgitated to almost every high control religion experience that I've heard of is that if I'm doing something for myself, that is bad. Yeah. Well, from your perspective, because we, you know, we need to kind of wrap up. I I could keep you for hours, but I want to make sure that we're honoring your time and mine. From your perspective, how do we check ourselves? Because I don't even want to say protect ourselves. How do we check ourselves when we're, you know, taking in information from, from people about the authenticity and inauthenticity movements? How do we kind of like check that against our own inner wisdom. Have you found anything that you feel like works for you or is this still a place of uncertainty for you? I mean, this is absolutely a place of uncertainty for me. Um, What I have to do and part of my upbringing, um, and, and I think this is specifically from the religious perspective, I tend to assume authority to the person that I'm talking to. And so for a long time, if I heard information, I just immediately accepted it as truth, right? That's what mm. we're taught. Like, you know, uh, you know, the Bible is truth. Here it is. Like, you can't say anything otherwise. There's nothing pushing back against that. 
And so that existed for me in my educational training. And even, even, you know, somebody would say something, you know, and I'm like, oh, that must be true. And then years later, I would find out, oh, that's not true. Like, mm-hmm. how did, you know, you know, and so for me, it's just about being uncomfortable or being comfortable with the uncertainty of truth. And, you know, one of the reasons why agnosticism has connected so deeply with me is because it's allowed me a space to be a little skeptical, skeptical of anything claiming to be capital T truth. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, in all the research that I got to do for this podcast about authenticity, like just being a little bit skeptical, not just of language that felt icky and I, I knew immediately that I disagreed with, but also language that immediately resonated with. Yep. You know, when I started, when I started looking into kind of the other side of the argument within the psychology movement about authenticity and this idea that our actions today are determined by what's been programmed into us from birth and like really getting curious around those statements too. Okay. What does it mean if our authenticity is just the sum of our experiences and who's being left out if that is the be all end all truth authenticity. Um, the phrase that I love most and, and try and keep with me is the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah. Like the truth is somewhere between what you feel about authenticity and what I feel about authenticity and what, you know, the, the many, many individuals who will be listening to this podcast, like what they feel about authenticity. Mm-hmm. And, and if we can just live in those spaces, which are a little uncomfortable, you know, I think that's where, again, I don't think that's where we find capital T truth, but I think it's where we get to relish in a little bit of that uncertainty and get comfortable with that uncertainty. Um, yeah. Because because I don't necessarily know if we are supposed to know. Yeah. And I, I love that idea. What kept coming to mind for me as you were talking is, I think for many of us, that's what we wanted from church was the ability to get curious and to hear everybody's perspective and just to philosophize, to like ask the hard questions and hear lots of different answers and then get curious about the answers that we heard and ask more questions, hear more answers, get curious again, and just kind of repeat this until we continue to like just understand our world a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And I don't think we arrive at capital T truth. I think we just arrive at a better understanding of who we are in the world as we perceive it. And I wish, and I I wish there were safe spaces in religion to do that. I wish that's what we had grown up with. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that's something that we can create with this podcast and with many of the other people that are starting to do deconstruction work. I hope that's where we land collectively is a place where we can say, this is what I think. What do you think? Okay. That's interesting. What do you think? And we ask several different people and we just start conversations, not necessarily to arrive at truth, but to arrive at the safety to ask the questions and to think about them and mull them over and ask more questions. And just like you said, feel comfortable with that uncertainty and, and 
make uncertainty feel like a like a safe, not so scary place for us because I think that there's yeah. a lot to be gained in that space. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I don't think enough of us allow uncertainty to be a valid choice. No. Well, and genetically there's a part of our brain that is like this is this is, you know, dangerous to our survival mm-hmm. because if we didn't know what was going to happen, you know, we could eat the wrong berry and die. But <laughs> yeah. But we've evolved to a point now where uncertainty is a lot safer and it's okay to be in a place where we don't know everything and we can kind of get curious and question. I love that you said question the things that come up that feel like, yes, that's what I believe as well as the things that feel like red flags. Oh, Chris, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. And Thank you. remember guys, if you want to come and talk with him on February 8th at 6 30 PM, monthly donors will have access to a live call where well, they'll get to ask questions and kind of have a conversation with all of us and, and do some of that conversing and philosophizing and, and getting into the uncertainty with us. We look forward to that call. Chris, one more time before we end, tell people where they can find you if they want to engage in your energy and, and learn from you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would dearly love for individuals to follow me on Instagram at Chris Speaks Up. Um, if you want to con- uh, connect with me directly, just go to my website, www.speakintoactioncom.com. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. And thank you all for joining us for this conversation. And we will see you again next week.